In the last podcast, So It Begins, we looked at how capital is responding to climate change influences, demonstrating that what's long been clear to scientists, environmentalists and others is also becoming clear to big business and investment bodies. Our political leaders are seemingly not geared for long-term strategies, but the Minister for Agriculture, the Honourable Alana McTiernan, is WA's not-so-secret weapon. She is pushing hard from the top to create new directions in agriculture, and Geraldton is developing savvy businesses with sound environmental values to meet her agenda for change. If you're listening to this in the Midwest WA, you're lucky. We've so got this covered. In Geraldton, a small town of about 32,000 souls, some 430-odd kilometres north of Perth, a little band of free thinkers met on a morning in late January to compare regenerative notes. The meeting went along like, well, like riding a bike with slightly square wheels, but it felt great. In conversations I shared with everyone after the meeting, it became clear that coming together felt powerful. There were many values shared between this disparate mob. No one has to be persuaded that change is upon us and that big change needs big regen thinking. Of the nine present, five were farmers with a fair amount of multitasking going on in the areas of food distribution, training, carbon project development, entrepreneurship, podcasting and facilitating. Connections crisscrossed and cross-currented and the few who hadn't met face-to-face had the chance to put names to faces and projects that had emerged from kitchen table chat to become discussions at various conferences, dinners, field days, cafes, and, of course, back to kitchen tables for the past three or so years. Literally decades of experimentation, change thinking, and a lot of work was represented at this table. Some of these people, it has to be said, before we get into the tidies turning positive stuff, have suffered derision and isolation in their years of going against the grain of officially sanctioned land management techniques. But the energy for change is upon us, and there is a sense that instead of struggling into the southerlies, we now have this wind at our backs. And the southerly, on a normal summer's day around these parts, is a force to be reckoned with. So this is a pretty optimistic metaphor. We didn't have an agenda, but we did have a few starting points. Clint Hansen, a Minang and Baladong Noongar elder and trainer of youth, Rod Butler, Phil Logue, Perendry-based farmers and regenerative farm developers, have come up with the term land culture and created a diagram of a triangle with carbon at its heart. The three sides are community, environment and economic return. After this meeting, reflecting on how good it felt to get together as a group, Rod Butler and I agreed in principle that we have to do the common land thing. This regenerative agricultural investment crew have a fourth return, inspiration or hope. So we'll borrow that. An important aspect of land culture is training young Aboriginal people on country. Rod O'Bree was at the meeting. At his farm Yanjet on the outskirts of Geraldton, He's worked with young Aboriginal boys from the Clontarf Football Academy, getting them thinking about water flow and earthworks designed to stop erosion and build soil. They get it, he says simply. 
Rod started learning about water and flow in 2009 when he took over Yanjet and met Peter Andrews. Ten years on, the student is coming into his own as he consolidates and value-adds to this knowledge. He's been working with Tim Wiley, a scientist, to institute the kinds of healing processes that have worked at Yanjet on other people's farms. Clint's cultural knowledge will become a vital part of this process. Most recently, Tim, Rod and a few trainees did some earth moving on Christine and Kingsley Smith's Dandarigan farm, then ran a training and communication session for some locals. Christine, also at this meeting, was instrumental in finding the Shire grant to get it happening and hopes to use her hectares as a showpiece for people interested in change in her rural zone. In the last few years, Rod's found himself sharing conversations on how to rehydrate land. He's been refining his communications, testing what works, and favours using hoses and ant-scale landscapes to demonstrate water, plants and earth building the land. The quality of questions the Aboriginal boys ask and their quick understanding is another stream feeding into his big dreaming for our region. Maybe this understanding is down to the Aboriginal capacity to think in patterns. I think this because I've been blessed to read a book called Sand Talk. The author, Tyson Yunker Porter, sits with people in Australia and Greenland, teasing out the strands of Indigenous philosophy. I ended up concluding that if you can understand things in terms of function and relationship to each other, see the patterns then it makes it easier to grasp concepts in the land that are simple, as in profoundly simple, but counterintuitive for mainstream thinkers. As Westerners, we're trained to see things in bits, which is why some of us might lag behind the footy boys when we watch Rod manipulate water flow in the land. I've got to tell a story here. It illustrates cultural differences beautifully. In Perth growing up, I loved my Auntie Judy. She was a bit of a legend in Guildford and was one of the first to lobby for the planting of trees endemic to the area. She was a keen local historian and considered an oracle of all things WA. A formidable woman, really. Large, wide and country-born with the fine features in the little head of her ancestors, the fabled, at least in their own minds, Drummond and Harper clans. She had a great chuckle and a twinkly-eye thing happening that was attractive. I was interested in plants and really interested in her grasp of Latin as she tossed words around going about her gardening and politicking. One day, Jude and I were touring her backyard, checking out different species. Jude. And this is an acacia blah blah and a casuarina something or other and this is the casuarina blah blah. How can you tell these two apart, I said out loud. Jude pulled down the nearest casuarina branch and we both leaned in, looking over our glasses with noses close to a bunch of those skinny little sticklings that pass as leaves. She started counting out the lines, marking jointed intervals on the leaf. One, two, three, a model of differentiation based on leaf segmentation. At some point, I stopped listening. There it was, the cultural overlay, Seeing it so clearly was funny. Imagine if my auntie was an Aboriginal woman. What would she be telling me? I reckon a black auntie would be saying about how it all works together, 
the sun, the water, the seasons, the plants, the insects, the animals, humans, ancestors, probably with a story filled with drama and energy containing all these elements and an educative moral to tie it all together for the youngsters. This is how a holistic worldview works in the connectivity of all living things. Even as a teenager, I knew I'd stumbled into a rich zone of cultural relativity. What I didn't feel until much later was just how much I was missing, how much we're all missing, by not having a black auntie telling us Aboriginal ways alongside the Western way. So I reckon everyone in this room saw Aboriginal knowledge as crucial to the unfolding story of regeneration and that this will expand the capacity for land and people to heal from past trauma. This is the zone where Clint needs to be able to do his stuff and he, the two Rods and Phil, are keen to formulate the best way to get kids back on country. At the moment, Batavia Coast Marine Institute, a part of the local TAFE and Clint's occasional employer, is in the mix to become the registered training organisation. The curriculum under development is old school, non-regenerative. So from my perspective, there's some horse trading to be done. But more on this spirit stuff. Apparently, when Charles Massey wrote The Call of the Reed Warbler, he was persuaded to leave out a chapter. It will be hard enough to sell regenerative land management ideas, he was told. Just don't go there. But I think there's a hunger for any expression of a deep connection to the land. Maybe the southerly will have enough in it to start filling out these sales as well. In podcast 21, Road Trip, I introduce listeners to Rod O'Bree in his role as a food distributor and creator of the catchment food brand. The big news is that as of early February, he is part owner of a local butcher's shop. Rod is pretty much flowing with the J-curve as he rides the escalating pace of change happening around the officially formulated Midwest food cluster. Catchment Food now has a home for meat and other produce coming from land in transition to more nature-based management systems, and it has become a crucial part of the official developing food strategy. Catchment Food could provide a great new market for the farmers in the room, all of whom run sheep, and several who are trialling broadacre cropping at the regen end of the spectrum. Brian Baxter, grower of fine woolen lambs on a farm in Perendry, took notes. Here is a new market for him, with ready-made interest in some regen cropping he wants to undertake this coming season. He's read the signs, is convinced that the season will be a good one, and is keen to keep talking with long-term neighbours Rod Butler and Phil Logue about the potential to join forces. Catchment Food also has an eye and connections going into Southeast Asian markets, but more of that later. Christine Smith has been a networker and advocate for regenerative practices from her hectares in Dandarigan for years. She was one of the movers of the Soil Restoration Farming Group that has been connecting farmers and regen scientists and facilitating peer-to-peer learning for a few years now. They bought Martin Stapper, Dr Christine Jones, Nicole Masters and Walter Jenner and more to WA, providing lightbulb moments for growers looking for information and support. 
On a personal level, Christine's looking for healing for her land and her family, while hoping their farm can be used as a demonstration site that will convince more locals to hop on board the Regen train. Christine recently shared an online interview with Alan Savory that had a few gems in it. This Alan Savory Institute is a global organisation offering farm planning and training in holistic management. In this interview, Alan talks about how to make lasting change and relates it to a real life case in point, the management of a national park. He prefaces it all by saying that all who are involved in an environmental restoration project must come to an agreement about action that paves the way for an outcome where everyone can achieve, quote, a deeply satisfying life that ticks all cultural, spiritual and social boxes. What else would everyone round the table want after all? But this means there must be no compromise and total agreement on any action taken. To get this point across, Alan promises that any action taken to ameliorate an environmental situation that does not have the agreement of all parties will lead to conflict. The situation must be dealt with holistically. I believe him. This feels profoundly true. But in this example, even though Alan's words made complete psychosocial sense, it seemed like such a tough call that I fell into it'll never work mode. Action taking without agreement of all involved leads to conflict because it comes from the mindset that is concerned with fixing a problem, which is by its very nature reductionist and will create other problems. Alan uses my favourite, weeds, as a case in point. Over decades, a reductionist approach to weeds has seen untold billions of research and product dollars thrown at the weed problem with the result of a more intractable weed problem and the side effect of adding to widespread ecological devastation. From the perspective of holistic management, weeds are not a problem. They are simply fast-growing pioneer plants that are part of the natural cycling of vegetation and need to be considered as an aspect of any land management plan. Understanding this and incorporating weeds into action as a given rather than a problem will obviously result in very different actions and outcomes from the first scenario. This is all by way of introducing you to Louise Edmonds, also at this meeting. She's been working with Rod Butler for some time while putting into place all the pieces needed to develop her carbon soil sequestration project. Louise is close to securing impact investment dollars that will facilitate the rolling out of a project that's been years in the making and has its heart in broadacre agricultural cropping in the WA wheat belt. One of the major points of difference of her carbon project is that Carbon Sink is the exclusive WA hub of the global savoury network. That means that any farm signed up to her project will have expert help on hand in the form of long-term training and on-ground support in holistic management to navigate the transition to more natural farming. The numbers Louise is crunching for the potential of wheatbelt cropping land to store carbon talks to the capacity of the wheatbelt to return to rich ecological and social balance while creating significant financial returns. Before she became a carbon project developer, Louise was making compost extract for farmers in her business Intuit Earth. 
She recognised that some of the people she was working with were struggling to manage their farms effectively, often because the couples or families running the show were not on the same page. Being Louise, she did a bit of research, quickly picked up on Alan Savory's breakthrough work and set about bringing a holistic management trainer to WA. No mean feat, considering she had to talk a bunch of people into something they didn't know they needed. Down the track, the Savory work has become one of the pillars of her own personal development and an essential part of the Wheatbelt Regeneration Project. Rod Butler, too, has just recently graduated as a trainer in holistic management. Just before writing this, I chatted to Rod Butler about Alan Savory's insight into management and decision-making processes, expressing my disquiet at ever being able to achieve the kind of total agreement he talks about. Rod, in what I'm learning, is a very Rod-like way, made it real. It's more about a feeling that grows in the room, he said. I prefer to think of it as going for more of what you want and less of what you don't want. I got off the phone happy. That sounds achievable. It is, after all, exactly what happened in this meeting between nine souls in Geraldton. The Big Regen Part 2 will continue as an ongoing series, bringing you the Midwest and WA-based projects as they develop. Stay tuned. <laughs>